And returning to our series, our brief series in the Proverbs this morning. As we have heard frequently, as we, as you see frequently, if you've ever read through the Proverbs, there's a repeated refrain in the Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. <clears throat> the fear of the Lord involves faith that God is God, faith that God is the lone ruler and judge over all things, faith that, as Solomon says at the end of Ecclesiastes, that the same creator God will bring all things into judgment. If you fear the Lord, then you will seek to live in a way that honors him. Doing that requires a measure of skill. The skill for living life well under the sovereign rule of God, living in a way that pleases him, is called wisdom. That's why the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is also why the Bible says that the opposite of wisdom is foolishness, and that fools despise wisdom and instruction. The epitome of foolishness is to do the opposite of what it means to fear the Lord. It is to reject the reality of God's existence. It is to live as if he does not exist at all. It is to refuse to acknowledge his rule, his sovereign rule over you. It is to live not for his ultimate pleasure, but for, his own, for your own or for some other person. The Bible calls this the epitome of foolishness precisely because there is a God in heaven who rules and reigns over all and who will bring all things into judgment. That fact was clearly proven by the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the declaration from God to the world that we are sinners and that he is a judge. Jesus was sent into the world to live a life that we could not a life that was pleasing to God in every way. In him, the Bible says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Certainly, if anyone could live a life pleasing to God, it would be him. He died a death that we deserve, a substitutionary death. It had to be a substitutionary death because he never sinned. He didn't die because he was a sinner. He died for our sin, for our sake. He shed his precious blood and his blood was precious because he lived a righteous life he shed his precious blood as a payment for our sins and on the third day according to the scriptures he rose again victorious over sin and death to be declared as Paul says in Romans the son of God with power through his resurrection in order to grant forgiveness of sins eternal life the gift of righteousness to those who believe in him in order to make us complete in him to grant us the wisdom to walk in a manner worthy of God the sending of Jesus Christ into the world is not just a sweet and wonderful story to give us warm feelings around the Christmas season But it is a declaration of God to humanity that the way we are living is not okay. And that there is a coming judgment. And that the only way to escape that coming judgment is by the way he has provided. And that way is his son. To those who are called, yes, we are granted new life. Yes, we are indwelt by his spirit. 
Yes, he is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, according to Philippians 2. But we must still seek after his wisdom. We must still seek after the skill that will enable us day to day to yield to his spirit, to obey his word so that we can walk in a manner worthy of God. As I said last week in quoting Dr. R.C. Sproul, everything that we do, every decision that we make counts for eternity. It matters. All of our thoughts, all of our decisions, all of our actions. And again, as we return to Proverbs this morning, we're reminded that it is for that reason that we need, desperately need, the wisdom of God. In chapter 2 of the Proverbs, we're going to learn that we must seek after wisdom as a treasure, as it is given to us by the Lord as a gift, as a guard, and as a guide for our lives. If you haven't, go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 2. I'm going to read the entire chapter and then we'll start to look at it in greater detail together. Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the, e- the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. Who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and whose ways who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Father, again, we come before you with hearts grateful for your word, your truth. As Jesus prayed, your word does sanctify us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively this morning as we sit together around the Proverbs, I pray that they would be acceptable in your sight. For again, Lord, you are our rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. We must seek the wisdom of God as a treasure, as it is given to us by the Lord as a gift, as a guard, and as a guide for our lives. 
Let's take a look at the first four verses where Solomon encourages his son first to seek after wisdom as a treasure. Look again at verses 1 through 4. He says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. He says, My son, just a reminder, this is a personal address. This is not the address of a teacher to a student, a boss to an employee. This is personal. This is from a father to a son. There's a sense of earnestness, a sense of urgency. Solomon is dedicated to teaching his son wisdom. He is encouraging his son with words of wisdom and encouraging him to hold on to those words. He longs for his son to know wisdom because he knows how necessary it is for one who lives in a life in which God is sovereign and in which God judges. This very fact alone is instructive for us. We ought to be intentional in teaching subsequent generations the wisdom of God. This is not worldly wisdom. Every generation has its own set of proverbial sayings. This too shall pass. Someone's getting on my last nerve. Money doesn't grow on trees. Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Or how about the ever famous, God helps those who help themselves, which is nowhere in Scripture. These are among some of those rare gems of wisdom that have been spouted as truths in recent times. We need to pass along the wisdom of God. James made clear that there is a distinction between the wisdom that is from above and the wisdom that is from below. I've referred to that passage frequently. It's in James chapter 3. There are plenty of sources from which the next generation will draw the world's wisdom. You can't get away from it. In television and movies, radio, their favorite video games, from their peers, from their teachers in school just making observations of people in the world today. You, Christian, ought to strive to teach the next generation the wisdom that is from above. Wisdom from the God to whom they are accountable. Parents, this is your duty. Grandparents or great-grandparents, if you are a Christian, this is your duty. To teach your children not the world's wisdom, but wisdom that is from above. That means you need to be seeking out that wisdom that is from above as well. Otherwise, you'll have nothing to pass on. Ultimately, you, parents, grandparents, are are going to be held accountable not for the choices that your children make on their own, of their own volition, but you'll be held accountable for whether or not you were encouraging them in the way of wisdom, whether or not you brought them up, as it says in Ephesians chapter 6, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You cannot control whether they believe, but you can direct them to the one in whom they should believe. Furthermore, and we've talked about this before, but this ought to be a regular pattern in the church. The older teaching the younger generation the wisdom of God. That's what Paul emphasizes in Titus chapter 2. For my older saints, this means you. You may feel as if you have nothing left to do in the church, nothing left to give, but the reality is that you have a whole life worth of wisdom to give. And the Lord expects you to give it. You don't need to have a degree in theology or an official title in the church. You don't need to wait for an invitation. 
Reach out to those who are younger, younger families, younger adults. Encourage them in the Lord. Guide them in the Lord. Direct them to the wisdom of the Lord. If you can do nothing else, share with the word with them. Whatever you're reading about that week, pray with them. Write a card. Put it in the mail to let them know you're praying for them. One of the things that sticks with me to this day about my mentor in the faith who is with the Lord now is that he endeavored to pray for over 100 people daily. He had served the Lord in many different ways. As a pastor, he was a a chaplain in the army. He served as a Bible college professor, a seminary professor. He was a president of a Bible college for a number of years. When he retired, he didn't retire from ministry. He kept praying. He made it his ministry to pray for over 100 people, family, yes, but also friends, also missionaries that they knew, also others who he knew were students in seminary and school. He made it his job, his duty, his ministry to pray every single day. And he was in stage four of cancer for much of that time. And so it wasn't easy for him to get up, but he got up every single morning and he prayed and he labored in prayer for people. You may not be able to go door to door to pass out tracts. You may not feel that you can sit out on a chilly day and hand out cocoa. You may not even be able to get to church every Sunday as you want, but you can do that. You can pray, you can call, you can reach out to those who are younger, who are perhaps struggling along in life, who need to know that it's going to be okay. It will work out that God will take care of you. They need to hear that from someone else. Back to the text, again, Solomon is exhorting his son to not merely listen to his words, but also to treasure his words. Verse 1, again, if you receive my words, you have heard them, but it's more than that, and treasure up my commandments. This is Hebrew poetry, so the first half of the line is clarified by the second half. Solomon is not asking for two different things. The point is that he wants his son not only to hear his words, but also to place value on his words and to keep them. You can listen to someone speaking, but if you don't value or treasure their words, it will, as we used to say, go in one ear and out the other. Solomon is exhorting his son to value his words, to treasure them. Do not let them go. Hold on to my words, my commands. Again, that is because his words and his commands are words of wisdom. Again, we should be training our children not only to hear our words, but to treasure our words. We should not allow them to take our words lightly as if they do not matter. It is not okay if they easily forget a command that you've given them. We want to train up children to be quick to listen, quick to obey, to take our words seriously, our commands, our instructions seriously. Otherwise, again, they'll grow up to be adults who are slow to listen, slow to take a lesson, slow to respond to those who are in authority. He goes on to underscore the importance of treasuring his words. And as you listen to the following verses, I want you to consider the way that he encourages him to treasure his words. There is an explicit emphasis on the effort that it takes to do this. It's not easy. There's effort that you must put forth in treasuring the words of wisdom. Verse 2, making your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. 
Again, in poetry, the first half of the line is clarified by the second. What does it mean to make your ear attentive to wisdom? It means to incline your heart towards it. Wisdom and understanding are being used synonymously. It is wisdom that brings understanding. Wisdom that helps you to be an understanding kind of person who will be able to understand how to live life well under the sovereignty of God. But again, you need to put forth effort. You need to make your ear attentive to it, and that means inclining your heart. The ear is the gateway to the heart. The heart is the seat of the emotion, intellect, and will. If truth that is spoken only remains in the ear, or again, goes in one ear and out the other, then it'll never reach the heart. Because that's where your intellect, emotion, and will are stimulated. If it never reaches the heart, it's not going to have any effect on your life. Only those things that truly reach the heart have the ability to affect one's life. And in order for something to reach the heart, there has to be a perceived value on those things. Words of wisdom, godly wisdom, are not immediately absorbed by the heart. The heart is hard. The hearer has to intentionally incline their heart to it, meaning they must first evaluate the words being spoken and ascribe value to them to keep them in the heart so that they will affect the emotion, intellect, and will. I'll give you a very silly, kind of a silly example. I can say to some of you that the Pittsburgh Steelers made the playoffs. Now, it may be that you simply don't follow sports, but for those of you who do, you'll look at me or roll your eyes and you'll say, who cares? And I'd say I agree. I can look at that same group of people and point out that both of our home teams, the Orioles and the Ravens, have made it to the postseason this year due to their stellar efforts. And you'd be excited for that, those of you who follow sports. That bit of information means something to you. It evokes an emotional response, a bit of happiness. It's the home team. What happens to the home team is a matter of pride. On the other hand, the fact that the other team made the playoff means nothing. Those words go in one ear and out the other. The fact that the home team made the playoffs is a completely different matter. We incline our heart to the one and not to the other due to the value that we place on the words being spoken. Moving on, verse 3. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. In verse 2, we incline our hearts to wisdom. In this verse, we call out for it. Wisdom is personified frequently in the Proverbs as one who both calls out to those who need it as well as one who must be asked for. Call out for insight, he says. Raise your voice for understanding. The only reason why you would need to call out or raise your voice is if there's something important or significant happening for which you need to sound an alarm or if you need help from someone. And I think the latter is the point here. You need help and so you call out for it. In this case, you call out for wisdom. The words insight and understanding are being used synonymously. It's insight that leads to understanding, being able to see things more clearly in a way that provides understanding. And again, both are used synonymously with wisdom in the context of the Proverbs. Nevertheless, wisdom, insight, and understanding are something that you must, that's the implication of Solomon's words here, it's something that you must call out for. You are responsible for calling out for wisdom. We have our prayer meeting regularly. We have one coming up next week where we gather together as a church to collectively show our dependence on the Lord and to call out for wisdom, to call out for his help. That's what prayer is. 
Remember just a bit ago, I said to listen for the explicit emphasis on the effort it takes to gain wisdom. Verse 2, you have to incline your heart towards it. You have to place value on words of wisdom. Here, you have to call out for it. There's effort. Moving on to verse 4. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Wisdom is here compared to silver. He says, seek it like silver. Silver was a hot commodity in their day as it is in our day. Silver was valuable. It was traded. It was treasured. Wisdom should be viewed as such a commodity for the believer. Why? Because, again, it helps you to live life well in a world in which God is sovereign and which he will judge. Shouldn't we all want that? He says, search for it as for a hidden treasure. Again, the first half of the line is clarified in a second. Silver is a treasure that is known, but how much more should you search for, for a hidden treasure? Something is that is of even greater value is the idea. That is wisdom. That's how we must view wisdom. It's like silver. It's like a hidden treasure, something of even greater value than silver. We would probably more liken it to gold in our day or costly diamonds if someone were to tell you that there is a literal pot of gold and diamonds in the woods out back that you just need to look for and dig up in order to claim, you would be a fool not to do it. Wisdom is that pot of gold. It's those diamonds. Wisdom is that treasure that must be sought out in order for its value to do you any good. This would be a careful study of the word of God, of his truth, of his wisdom. This is not a cursory glance. This is not an occasional reading of scripture when you're distracted by television in the background or kids playing or radio or whatever else is happening. This is sitting in a quiet room with only the word of God, a pen, a paper, some study materials, some commentaries and dictionaries. This is underlining the text, outlining, cross-referencing. This is a careful, meticulous examination of the word of God in order to search out wisdom for yourself. So far, the exhortation from the word of God in the Proverbs chapter 2 is that we must seek after wisdom as a treasure of great value. We must incline our hearts towards words of wisdom. We need to see words of wisdom as something worthy of our consideration, necessary for our lives. We must pray for wisdom, call out for it, raise our voices as if we need the very help of wisdom, as if we know we need wisdom. We must search for it as for hidden treasure. We must plumb the depths of God's word, of the words of the wise, in order to find the treasure of wisdom that is there. Christian, does that describe your attitude towards wisdom, your pursuit of wisdom? Do you pursue the wisdom of God in that way? Do you incline your ears to words of wisdom, believing that it is not optional but necessary for your life? Do you pray fervently that the Lord would grant you wisdom? Do you call out for it frequently? Do you search the word of God diligently as if the wisdom in it were a hidden treasure? Does that describe your pursuit of wisdom in life? If not, why not? What's more worth your time and effort? What are you pursuing after in life that is of greater value? The expectation in the word of God is that there is a sense of urgency among the people of God 
a recognition of responsibility and diligence in the pursuit of God that has largely been lost on the church these days. We want things to be easy, to be comfortable. We're content with simply believing in Jesus and forgiving our sins and giving us entrance into heaven and not doing anything more than that. One author said this, obtaining spiritual wisdom isn't a once a week hobby. It is the daily discipline of a lifetime. But in the age of microwave oven, fast food, digest, and numerous made easy books, many people are out of the habit of daily investing in time and energy and digging deep into scripture and learning wisdom from the Lord. Thanks to television, their span is brief. Thanks to religious entertainment that passes for worship, their appetite, their spiritual appetite is feeble and spiritual knowledge isn't pleasant to their soul. It's no wonder fewer and fewer people take time to be holy and more people fall prey to the enemies that lurk along the way, end quote. Beloved, an easy faith and effortless faith is not the nature of faith in the Old Testament nor in the New. Again, we're not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works, and those good works take pursuit. They take energy. It takes effort. Again, we hear the exhortation in the Proverbs to seek after the Lord. Hear the exhortation in the New Testament as well. Paul, in the letter to the Colossians in chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, which you could translate since, that's really the idea, since you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's energy. That's effort. That's diligence. That's your responsibility. Seek the things that are above. He goes on. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Seek what is above. Set your mind on what is above. Do you do that? Does that describe your faith? Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And we all say a hearty amen. Praise God. He has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And then he says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He's talking to believers here, and he says, yes, God has saved you through the true knowledge, through through your knowledge and your understanding of who Jesus is and your faith in him. God has saved you, but you need to continue to put forth effort and diligence in your faith in pursuing virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. That is your responsibility. Paul in Philippians, 
Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of mine own that, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, but that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, That's, that, that describes my life. Everything else in my life is worth nothing. It's, worth, it's, it's comparable to trash, to rubbish, to refuge. Christ is everything. In fact, there is such great value in him that everything else, again, is just pales in comparison. And then he says, even though that's true in my mind and my heart, I know that I haven't quite made it yet. I still need to put forth effort. Listen to this. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Now, this is Paul speaking. The Apostle Paul, the one who preached the gospel across the then known world. Now, if anyone, if we could say that anyone had legitimate and true faith, it would be Paul. If we would look up to anyone in the New Testament, any of the apostles, there's no greater example than Paul. But Paul says, I'm not perfect. And I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm nowhere near where I need to be, but I'm pressing on towards that. Forgetting what lay behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, let those of you who are mature think this way. And if you think in any other way, God will let you know about it. He says, this is a mature way to think about life. That my life is a constant pursuit of Christ. Constantly striving after him. That word for pressing on is a word that is typically used to describe a horse in full gallop in a race. This is not just pittering along, taking a slow saunter. This is a horse in full stride, running to the finish line. He says that ought to describe your faith. That ought to describe the energy and effort you put forth in pursuing Jesus Christ in this life as a Christian. That is wisdom. Pursuing God in such a way striving in such a way to live a life that is pleasing to him. That is said in so many different ways in the New Testament. Let your life, you know, Paul urges us in Ephesians chapter 4 to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Colossians chapter 1, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. 1 Thessalonians 2, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged each one of you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. We ought to be seeking to walk in a manner worthy of God. And in order to do that, we need the wisdom of God. And in order to have his wisdom, we need to constantly be seeking after him and striving towards him and digging deep to get to know him better. Christianity is not a part-time faith. It's not a Sunday morning only faith. There's a diligence, a pursuit, a significant effort that needs to be made on our part in pursuit of living in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ, walking in wisdom as a Christian. 
How are you doing with that? Are you diligently pursuing the wisdom of God so that you may walk in a way that is pleasing to Him? Again, if you're not diligently pursuing His wisdom every single day, striving to know Him better in order to live in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ, what are you doing with your life, Christian? Back to our text. Solomon is encouraging his son to seek after wisdom as if it were a treasure. And again, that is the expectation for us who have been called by God in Christ, that we be ever pursuing his word, his wisdom, as if it were a treasure, so that we may walk in a manner worthy of our calling in him. Moving on in the text in Proverbs 2, Solomon makes clear why we ought to pursue wisdom as a treasure. And again, there are three main reasons. Pursue wisdom as a treasure because the Lord gives wisdom as a gift. He gives wisdom as a guard and he gives wisdom as a guide. We'll look at that first point in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. The Lord gives wisdom as a gift. He says, if you seek after wisdom, verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. If you search for wisdom as a treasure, then the Lord will give you wisdom as a gift. Those who search for wisdom find it. The the then, the if then is Uh, an indication of a conditional statement. If you do this, then this will follow. If you search for wisdom, then you will find it, and you'll find it precisely because the Lord gives it as a gift. As I mentioned, there are a number of words being used synonymously throughout the Proverbs, but they're all an indication of wisdom. He says in this section, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We also see in verse 5, knowledge. We see in verse 6, knowledge and understanding. We see in verse 10, knowledge repeated again. We see in verse 11, discretion. And again, we see understanding. Wisdom is also used multiple times in this short section between verses 5 through 11. All of these are pointing to the same central truth. It is the wisdom of God that we need to seek. And as we seek it, the Lord will give it to us as a gift. Verse 6, again, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The Lord rewards those who search for wisdom. He is the possessor of wisdom, and therefore he gives wisdom as a gift to those who search for it. Again, we read from James chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I think James must have been thinking about this passage in Proverbs. One author said it this way, people are willing to work diligently in their jobs because they know they'll earn a paycheck, but what about applying themselves diligently to God's word in order to gain spiritual riches that are more valuable than gold and silver and jewels, riches that will last forever? The benefit of pursuing wisdom is that the giver of every good and perfect gift is ready and willing to give you wisdom, to give wisdom to those who diligently seek for it. If we're honest, sometimes we need the wisdom of God, but we don't ask because we come to the end of our rope, so to speak. We've exhausted all of our understanding and knowledge. We've consulted others and exhausted all of their understanding and knowledge, and we somehow think that applies to God. And so we don't ask. 
Maybe we don't say that we think God won't know what to do, but that's how we ask when we don't go to him for wisdom. Perhaps it's not that we don't think he'll be able to give us wisdom, but we're just too busy to ask. We're too busy working, too busy striving to figure it out on our own, too busy with the everyday mundane things of life, too busy thinking about all the unanswered questions, all the what-ifs, all the potential scenarios that may come about, all the reasons that make us anxious, too busy to ask, too busy to pray, and therefore we're too busy to receive the wisdom that God has for us. I preached from Isaiah 40 on this past Christmas, and we were reminded of a very important truth concerning the person of God. In verse 28, Isaiah says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What does that mean? You can't search it out. You won't be able to find the end of it. You can't go far enough down You can't go far enough to the left or to the right to find the end of the wisdom of God. His understanding is unsearchable. God is not like us. That's the point. No one can fathom his understanding, the NIV says. Therefore, he has vast understanding and vast stores of wisdom to pour out on us in time of need. Look at the next verse, verse 7. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. The Lord is the possessor of wisdom and promises to give wisdom. The text says that he stores up wisdom for the upright. There is a storehouse of wisdom in the heavenly places waiting for you, Christian. What questions do you have in life right now? What are the great question marks? What keep you up at night? What decisions do you need to make? Should I take this job or that? Should I move to this place or that? Should I go to this school or that? Should I be a friend to this person or that person? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I get a second opinion on my diagnosis? Should I have this procedure done or not? As a church, we're celebrating 100 years of ministry in the Catonsville area. What are the next 100 years going to look like for us? Should we consider merging with another church to further the ministry? Should we consider different kinds of outreach initiatives to further the ministry? Should we just keep doing what we're doing and trust the Lord to further the ministry? We got questions, but the Lord has wisdom sitting in a storehouse that he is willing to pour out on us if we would just ask. And listen, it's not just any wisdom. It's wisdom that works for our good. Look again at verse 7. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk integrity. Verse 8, guarding the paths of justice and working over the way, watching over the way of his saints. There are multiple synonyms for wisdom. There are multiple synonyms for the people of God as well in these verses. He calls them the upright, those who walk in integrity, his saints. We are the upright, those who walk in integrity. We are the saints of God, not because there's anything special in us, but because of his calling in our life. Because we are called by his name, because he has set us apart in himself and ultimately his son. This is true for the saints of God today, just as it was for the saints of old. They look forward to the coming of Christ. We look back upon his first coming. All of us by faith are made the people of God because of him, because of the Messiah, because of his sacrifice for us. His wisdom, the wisdom of God, is not wisdom that will fail us, in other words. It is wisdom that will be for us a shield. 
It will guard the paths of justice for us. It will watch over our way. As we treasure the wisdom of God, so as to seek it, God promises to provide it, and the quality of the wisdom that he provides is going to be the kind of wisdom that watches over us like a shield and that protects us in all of our ways. What greater confidence can you have than that? Sometimes we are tongue-tied when we struggle with some kind of issue where we suffer from what my mentor used to call the paralysis of analysis. We think so long and hard about a decision and the what-ifs, assuming that there is an exact right answer that we must discern from the lips of God. We must hear his audible voice tell us the exact specific thing that we should do because we act otherwise Before we have the exact right answer, then maybe God's just going to rain down fire and brimstone and our whole life is going to fall apart and there's going to be disaster. But that's not what this text says. Faith does not mean always knowing the exact right answer to a question. There is not always an easy or direct answer to a question that you need, that you have for which you need wisdom. God doesn't answer every particular scenario in his word He doesn't tell you what pair of pants to put on tomorrow. He doesn't tell you what meal to eat the next day. He doesn't even tell you whether to take your car or the Jeep or to take a bus or to take a plane or to drive. He doesn't tell you all of those things. But what he does is he gives you wisdom. And faith sometimes means having the confidence that so long as you are pursuing the wisdom of God, So long as you know that you're seeking to live in a way that pleases him, walking in the fear of the Lord, so long as you have that as your purpose, when you make a decision grounded in that motive, with that motive and with that desire, grounded with principles of wisdom, so long as those things are true, faith means trusting that he will still protect you, that he will be a shield for you as you make that decision, that he will watch over you, as you make that decision and move forward. The question is, do you believe that? And do you trust the Lord enough to make a decision based on principles of his wisdom, seeking to live in a way that pleases him? Do you trust him enough to take care of you when you make that decision? Moving on, this is the wisdom of God. It is wisdom that he gives as a gift. His gift of wisdom will protect you, and it will protect you Precisely because he's going to give you insight into walking on the right path. That's how it works. His wisdom works by giving us insight and helping us to know how to walk in a way that pleases him. Look at verses 9 through 11. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. The Proverbs is clear. The way you live is an indication of whether or not you fear the Lord. The way you live is an indication of whether or not you are wise or a fool. There's a clear differentiation between the path of life that the wise walk on and the path of life that a fool walks on. And as we've been saying, wisdom is intended to help the people of God, those who fear him, to stay on the path of what is good. On the path that leads to blessing and not to disaster. And that will become clearer as we walk through the rest of this chapter. But we're talking about the wisdom that God gives to his people as a gift. And this wisdom is given as a gift to protect them. And the wisdom protects them by granting us the ability, again, to understand righteousness, justice, and equity, every 
good path. I said last week, and I'll say again, God cares how we treat one another. He cares how we interact with one another. Righteousness, justice, and equity ought to characterize all of our dealings with each other. The wisdom that he gives provides us with the ability to understand how to live in this way, how to walk on the good path. This wisdom, this kind of wisdom that God gives is a pause when you're tempted to respond in anger towards someone who is rude to you. It is a pause and a thought that perhaps the person has just had a bad day, a bad week. Perhaps there's something more going on than what you see. Perhaps it is more necessary right now for you to show compassion than anger in response. This is the wisdom to cheat on your taxes. This is is the time of year where we're doing taxes, thinking about that kind of thing. You may think no one sees, no one will know. That little bit that I owe the government is not all that significant. I've worked hard on my life. The wisdom of God is a nagging reminder in your mind that God will see. He'll know. Righteousness, justice, and equity ought to characterize our lives. When it does, then the God by whose name we're called, by whom we are saved, he is glorified. He is pleased. He is honored. His wisdom will help you to understand how to continue to live that way for his glory, to walk in that path. He goes a bit further. We're given the ability to know how to walk on the good path because, verse 10, wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Wisdom will come into your heart. Again, it is not simply enough to hear wisdom. To simply hear it with our ears is not sufficient. We must have wisdom enter our hearts, the seat of our intellect, emotion, and will. When it enters into our hearts and we've identified it as something of value, then it affects our emotions. It moves our will to action. There's a sweet blessing that comes from knowing what is right. That's what he means when he says it will be pleasant to your soul. There's a sweetness, a pleasantness that's not innate to us. It doesn't come naturally. It is the joy of knowing that you're doing what is pleasing to God. This is not just checking off a box. This is, I am walking in the right path and I know that God is pleased with me. There's joy in that. It occurred to me that we fail our children when we don't help them to understand this truth. Sometimes all we're interested in doing is telling children yes or no, right or wrong, do this, don't do that. We give them a box, a list to check off, and they assume that that's the sum total of their responsibility to God. But no, it's more than that. It's not just that you should do what's right because God is judge. It's that when you do what's right, there is blessing that comes. There is good that comes. There is joy to be had in life when you live according to his way. When you walk his path, he will bless you. It's not the universe. It's not chance. It's not Mother Nature or whatever else that people tend to look at these days. It's that the God who created you, the one to whom you are accountable in life, he will bless you when you do things his way, when you walk in a way that pleases him, when you walk according to wisdom. That's his promise. This is the joy of Jesus himself who said his food and drink was to do the will of his father. The joy of the apostles and like the apostle Paul who constantly referred to the church, whatever church he wrote to, as his joy and crown. Even though he was sitting in prison writing those letters to those churches, he said, you are my joy and my crown. I went to prison, I was beaten, I suffered preaching the gospel to you, but you are my joy and my crown. Serving the Lord, doing what he called me to do, brings me joy. And we have to remember that. I wonder, do you know that joy? 
Do you know the joy of obedience? Joy is supposed to characterize the life of a believer. Joy is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. If you're struggling with joy, it may be because you're not walking in the fear of the Lord right now. Maybe because you're not walking in wisdom. And wisdom will come into your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Wisdom will be pleasant to you. It will bring blessing to you. Wisdom will serve as a guard for you, a protection for you. It will be a protection for us in large part because the wisdom itself will help us to avoid foolishness and danger. And Solomon is going to elaborate on that further in subsequent verses. But we'll take a look at that next week. For now, we need to remember the significance, the importance of wisdom that God is calling for us to be a people who are in active pursuit of his wisdom. That we're actively pursuing his wisdom, remembering that he has a whole storehouse of wisdom to provide for us. If we would just ask him, if we would seek after him, that he gives that wisdom to us freely as a gift that God is invested in the life of his people to the degree that there's no good that he would withhold from them. And I'll ask you again, are you pursuing his wisdom? Are you seeking for it as a treasure? The Lord has it ready and willing to give to you. Let us pray. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word which sanctifies us. Thank you for the reminders in your word of our need to pursue your wisdom. Father, I pray for your people today. I pray for those who have heard my voice, who have heard this, your word, your truth, that you would help us to remember to pursue your wisdom as of first importance. The myriad of questions, decisions, difficulties, and issues that we face in life. Father, we need your wisdom so that we can walk in a manner worthy of your calling of us in Christ. Father, give us your wisdom. As this final hymn that we're going to sing will say, be our vision. We pray that you would be so great that you would be so magnified in our mind's eye. That your wisdom, your truth, your word, your will, your way would be the most important thing to us. That it would sink down into our hearts and that it would motivate us to walk in a way pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.